0: Good morning. It is good to see you all again after having been gone for two Sundays. Uh, That's a weird thing. I don't know that in 20 plus years of ministry I've been absent for two Sundays in a row. Uh, But we had a good time at convention and very thankful for the time we could spend there. And then we uh, left convention on Friday morning at 4 a.m. and drove all the way to Traverse City, Uh, to be there at noon. And so uh, we spent a couple days in the Traverse City area. We had not been north ever in my entire life. Uh, I grew up in Colorado, so why would you come to Michigan? That's what I always thought. Uh, But now that I'm in Michigan, I'm glad that we're here. And I had never been north of Big Rapids. I didn't know what I was missing. Now I want to go up north all the time. So uh, we're looking forward to doing that again. We had a short time up there. Thankful for your prayers, and good to be back with you. Take your Bibles, if you will, as we begin our study in 1 Thessalonians and turn to the book of Acts. As you were warned, Scott warned you that we would be doing that. Uh, As Scott was saying that, I thought, you know, I, I don't often do this where I start a book by starting in another book. And then I thought, well, Philippians, I did it. Tonight in Ruth, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Maybe it is a trend that I actually have. I've never noticed before. Uh, but we are starting the book of 1 Thessalonians together. And part of the reason that we are doing so is if you do a survey, and I just did a brief survey. It was enough uh, for me to start as an opening illustration for our study in 1 Thessalonians. I did a brief survey of all of the surveys that are conducted concerning hope and hopelessness in the United States. Gallup. Barna, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, just to name a few of the ones that I just skimmed for information. It's hard because you're not comparing apples to apples, but overall I was looking for a theme. The theme was, how do we feel as Americans towards hope in the future? And that number has been crashing. It is interesting to see, in fact, the only positive bump up is not a positive at all in my mind. The only consistent thing that I saw was that people are trusting more and more in money and less and less in institutions and in the church. That was the only positive number that I saw, and it's not positive at all. In fact, even in patriotism, patriotism, the importance of patriotism in our country today is about 38 percent down from 41 percent about three years ago down from 59 percent six years ago just for one number trust in the church has continued to erode and decline as trust in money continues to rise and interestingly enough and i believe completely tied together the fear of recession brings great hopelessness to the youngest of generations who are now adults. Those were the themes. The book of First Thessalonians is a book that is written to a dynamic church. It was started in three weeks. Paul arrives in Thessalonica. He spends three Sabbaths in the synagogue. The Jews become jealous and remove him from Thessalonica. But in the place of Paul, a church is planted. Within a few months, likely not very long at all, Paul is already writing the letter of 1 Thessalonians from Corinth back to Thessalonica, and as he's writing the letter, he is encouraging a vibrant, dynamic church that's exploding onto the scene of Thessalonica and all of Macedonia, as we will see this morning. As Paul is writing to them, there is a concern The concern is that there is a growing lack of hope for the future. A disconcerting fact is the church has arrived on the scene and is growing, and some of their number have begun to die, and they expected to see the Lord's return. So Paul writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and he backs it up within weeks with 2 Thessalonians. So we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks together studying this most important of books. And as we do so, we're going to start this series this morning the same way we did the Philippian study in the book of Acts. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, we read this, and we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Father, we are thankful that we have the opportunity to dig into this important book this morning and in the weeks to come, should you tarry. But we are those who would shout the soon return of Christ. So Lord, we are looking forward to that day where Christ will meet us in the air to take to himself the church. We are looking forward to the day that would precede that day. Christ will come and set up his kingdom. Lord, while Christ tarries, we recognize there's a task to be accomplished, and we praise you for the spectacular example that the Thessalonian church is to the modern church today. The example of what it means to be reaching out for the sake of Christ, to be evangelizing not just those in our community, those who are within our small groups. But moving beyond that and reaching out to all of our region, Lord, we are excited to see the way that the Thessalonian church will engage in all of Macedonia and that their faith, grounded and rooted in the Word of God, will turn Macedonia on its head. Lord, what a joy for us to study in a day that is so filled with hopelessness. We have the great hope that is found only in those who accept Christ as Savior. So, Lord, as we come to this book, we're encouraged. We want to be strengthened and renewed. We're thankful for the time in your word. I pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that they would be from you, and that you'd give us as hearers the opportunity to not only listen, but to apply, to obey what we learn from your word this morning. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all of these things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen. As we turn into the book of Acts, we recognize that uh, Paul has arrived in a new city, and we leave Philippi. Just a few weeks ago, we concluded our study in Philippians, and we have moved from Philippi now as Paul was kicked out of Philippi, and we're following Paul's missionary journey as he goes to Thessalonica, and that is indeed the very next city that he arrives in, and that's why we start in the book of Acts. We started the book of Philippians in Acts chapter 16 where Paul begins to preach and proclaim the good news of Christ in Philippi. And he doesn't start in the synagogues. That is his normal thing to do, as we'll see here in the book of Acts. But instead, Paul has to go to the prayer meeting, remember, on the side of the river. It wasn't a synagogue filled with faithful Jewish people, it was a riverbank that had only women attending, and the first convert from the prayer meeting was not actually even Jewish. It was Lydia, a seller of purple fabric, a wealthy, well-to-do woman. The next convert was also not Jewish. She was the slave girl that was demon-possessed. The third convert at Philippi, was also not a Jew. It was the Roman centurion. So the church in Philippi is very different than the church that we're going to see begin to grow in Thessalonica. But the church we see in Thessalonica is started on the next city, or in the next city, and so Paul begins moving, and he arrives in Thessalonica in verses 1 through 3. We've read verse 1, now let's move on to verse 2. Scripture says, "...and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom, you, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." That's Paul's message. That's Paul's proclamation. And we have a a joy of getting into it and studying it a little bit this morning as Paul has arrived in Thessalonica, having left Philippi. And so we want to transition. As Acts 16 comes to a close, Paul leaves in Philippi a small number of believers, the ones I mentioned just a moment ago, in the city's first church. Paul leaves the city after the city officials learn of Paul's Roman citizenship and their fear because of their harsh treatment of Paul, their fear of reprisal against a Roman citizen the way that they have treated him. So city officials show Paul the door. (laughs) In Acts chapter 16 comes to a close. The city officials take Paul outside of the gates or at least usher him to the gates and say, "Uh, thanks for coming, don't come back. And Paul moves on, and he moves down, the Scripture tells us through Dr. Luke here in Acts, tells us that Paul moves down the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way is a major stone highway that served as an extension of the Appian Way. And so this is a major highway. Paul is not hitting all the little tiny towns. He's hitting a major town along the way. And so the Ignatian way is a very important connecting route between Rome and all of Italy and the rest of the east. And so if you were a a merchant, you traveled from Jerusalem or from Persia or from the Near East or Far East, you would travel through Thessalonica. You would travel the Ignatian way. And so Paul is traveling the Ignatian way And it is a distance from Philippi to Thessalonica of about 100 miles. So it is some distance, and it's not an easy walk. In fact, this is moving through the mountains of Greece. As we will see, Thessalonica sits in a picturesque valley. Thessalonica is today's Thessaloniki. So if you were to travel to Greece today, and you arrived in the second largest city of Greece, you would arrive in Thessaloniki And that is uh, ancient Thessalonica as well. It was originally named Therma. And I appreciate this. Having been from western Colorado, there's a lot of hot springs in western Colorado. And that's one of the draws to traveling out west is to sit in one of the hot springs. Well, that was the same draw to Thessalonica. There was a number of hot springs in the nearby area. And it was named Therma because of that. But Cassander one of Alexander the Great's generals would rename the city. He would rename it Thessalonica after Alexander the Great's half-sister, Thessalonica. So unlike Philippi, the city, Philippi being, the city being very distinctly Roman, Thessalonica was distinctly Greek. Very different culture for Paul to walk a hundred miles and go from The city that was had Greek influence but was extremely Roman. Remember, this is where the Roman Praetorian Guard and other Roman uh, soldiers would be settled in Philippi and would become a Roman colony with all of Roman rights and everything. Uh, Roman citizenship was granted to its citizens. Roman patriotism was strong in Philippi. But in Thessalonica, this is a Greek city. This is a city mainly controlled by those who were Grecian in every way. But when earlier, a few hundred years before Paul, when the Roman generals were fighting for control over Rome, the city sided, Thessalonica, sided with Augustus. Augustus was the victor in that battle, and so while being a Greek city, they enjoyed all of the benefits of being free. And becoming a capital city of Macedonia. They were called the crown jewel of Macedonia. This was a bustling city in a prime location on the Ignatian Way. The shops were stocked with consumer products. Amazon would have set up shop right there. (laughs) They would have sent stuff out by drones if they could have. Everything that you wanted could be found in the shops. If you wanted uh, clothes from the Far East, it was there. If you wanted spices from India, it was there. If you wanted uh, Roman idols, they were there. If you wanted Greek idols, they were there. Everything that you could possibly want was in the shops. The city was young and growing Again, it was called the crown jewel of Macedonia. And One author says this, Its setting was picturesque with the majestic mountains of Greece in its background, including and rising well above the bay, the fabled Mount Olympus behind it. The city was wealthy. And as far as the economy in the Roman city, the economy was stable, or in the Roman world, the economy was stable. Affluence was evident in everything. Wealth was floating in the air at Thessalonica. And it is interesting because we find that same kind of culture in many cities in the United States. It's different because it's maybe not Grecian culture, but we find very affluent cultures in the United States. We find extremely similar kinds of things as far as the ability and availability of possessions. You go to the store and you typically, other than a few weeks through COVID, you can find toilet paper. We can find the things that we want and desire in the stores. And so we are of many similarities to Thessalonica. But Paul does something that many churches do not do in our culture today. When Paul arrives in Thessalonica, he builds his ministry upon the authority of the Scriptures. Beloved, this is the key point and why we are in Acts 17. Paul builds his ministry on the authority of the Word of God. Notice verse 2 and 3 again. And Paul went in, that is, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul builds his ministry on the authority of the Word of God. Acts 17 doesn't dwell on the beauty or the wealth of the city of Thessalonica. In fact, if if I hadn't given you all that background, Paul doesn't give it to us in in the book of 1 Thessalonians concerning Thessalonica, and Luke doesn't give it to us in the book of Acts. He just says he went on to Thessalonica and he went into the synagogue. Paul wasn't taking pictures outside observing the mountain ranges. Paul was inside the synagogue doing the hard work, of explaining and expositing the Word of God to the people who attended. On arriving in the city, Paul goes immediately to the synagogue. Paul had tried to find one in Philippi, as we studied before. We said before, but he was unable to, which tells you a lot about the Jewish culture in Philippi, that they were very different. Uh, The Jewish culture even was very disconnected to Judaism. But in Thessalonica, the Jewish culture is very alive and very active, as we're going to see. Instead of a prayer meeting by the river, as in as in uh, Philippi, Paul is in the synagogue in Thessalonica. This is a situation far more similar, familiar to Paul. He spends three Sabbaths—that's three Saturdays—reasoning from the scriptures. He was not engaging in unnecessary debates. He was not bringing in a new word from the Lord. He was opening up the Old Testament as Christ himself had done in Luke 24. And he reasoned from the Scriptures, proclaiming two essential truths of the gospel. First, that Jesus Christ had to suffer and die. And second, that Jesus is the Christ who rose again. Those are the two essentials of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Literally, in the shadows of Mount Olympus and the fabled Greek pantheon, Paul did not devise some clever way of presenting the gospel. He didn't devise some special way, some, uh, some trickery, some eye-catching gimmick to get people to listen to him. He came in and proclaimed the authority of the Word of God concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. His message was incredibly powerful because it was the word of God proclaimed by the voice and proclaimed by the voice of Paul and who was a faithful servant and applied by the Holy Spirit to exceedingly needy hearts. That's why the message was so powerful. One author says this he says Paul simply sowed the seed. It was watered by tears in place of prayers. Then God came and And in his sovereign goodness, the Lord gave the increase. There were a number who said yes to Jesus Christ for the very first time in their lives. Before we leave these two verses, we need to really understand how Paul rested in the authority of the Scriptures. And Luke gives us some indications of this. He gives us four words, actually. Four words of how Paul did this. And we would do well to listen carefully. It's not the latest book that Paul wrote on evangelism. It was not the latest book that was floating around in the early church that came out of Jerusalem and Paul is saying, hey, uh, I'm going to apply this book, we're going to apply these principles on evangelism or we're going to try this church growth gimmick or we're going to start a new church this way on the new church planning guide that Peter wrote. Notice how Paul does this. First, Paul or Luke tells us rather in verse 2 that he reasoned with them from the scriptures This is the idea that he engaged with them in some kind of question and dialogue not worthless debate But question and dialogue his authority did not come from his office as an apostle But he reasoned from the scriptures Say well I can't share the gospel because i'm not an apostle uh Paul's sharing the gospel in spite of him being an apostle. He's sharing the gospel from the authority of the Word of God. He's not resting on his apostleship. He's not saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm here to convert you all. Paul reasons from the Scriptures. We see the exact same pattern in Christ in Luke chapter 24 twice. Remember the two on the uh, road? As they were on the road... The Lord Jesus Christ came among them and walked with them, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He could have said, look at my hands, look at my side, look at my feet. Don't you know that I'm the risen Lord? Instead, he would eat dinner with them, and upon his departure, their eyes would be open and they would realize who he was. Jesus would do the same with the disciples as well, where he reasons with them from the Scriptures, The Apostle Paul in Thessalonica does not come with a new word from the Lord, but he comes with the Word of God, the Old Testament. He doesn't have the New Testament. He's going to write the New Testament, or large portions of it. He comes with the Old Testament, and he, in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, starting from Genesis through Malachi, begins to work through the passages about Christ. So he reasons with them from the Scriptures. How did he, what did that look like even more detailed? Luke says this, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, verse 3, explaining, explaining. He didn't just proclaim it, say, okay, now I spoke the Word of God, now all of you believe. He, He explains it. Paul not only spoke from the Word of God, but he opened the Word to them. That is, he exposited the Word to them. Here at Byron Center Bible Church, we are deeply devoted to the exposition of the Word of God. We want to be those who understand what the Word of God says, but let us also take that out through our evangelism and let us exposit the Word of God to those who need Christ desperately. He didn't come up with some new definitions, he opened the Word of God and he explained what the Word of God said. He didn't come up with his own ideas. He didn't come up with some grandiose gimmicks. He explained the Word of God. And then Luke goes on and he says in verse 3, explaining and proving. Paul was clear. Paul had a purpose. I'm sure that there were all kinds of questions that Paul didn't answer. But Paul did answer the ones pertaining to Christ. He proved His path was direct and clear. He showed how the scriptures pointed to the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To the Jewish mind who was attending the synagogue that day, they would want to know why Jesus was not just some individual, some criminal that they hung on the cross who claimed to be king of the Jews, who claimed to be the Messiah, but was not the Messiah. The average Jewish mind would have thought those things as Paul begins, but Paul explains reasons and proves, using the Old Testament to point to Christ. And then Paul, or Luke says, rather in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul takes them to the Word of God, and he reasons with them. He opens up the Word of God together and they sit around the Old Testament. And as they sit around the Old Testament, Paul begins to explain the Old Testament. He preaches, he exposits the Word to them. Then he begins to uh, dig deeper into that and to prove, to make his point clear. He wasn't in a shotgun approach, hoping to get anything and everything that he could. It was pointed to the Gospel, pointed to Christ, that Christ would suffer death. That he would be one who would not only die, but would suffer in his death. And that was for sinners that he would do so. And then Paul made a bold and unashamed declaration of the biblical truth as he preached God's word. He proclaimed it. He didn't say, I think this is true. You know, if this is good for you, then great. If it's not good for you, you do you. Paul proclaimed with conviction and power an unashamed and bold declaration of biblical truth. This is the truth. Isn't that a refreshing statement in our culture today? Where we don't even know what genders are true. We don't know what uh, is true in a picture. Take a picture, and you don't know if it's AI-generated, Photoshopped, or the actual picture. You can't tell many times. You receive a letter today, you have no idea if it was AI-generated or if it was handwritten. Paul says to those in the synagogues at Thessalonica, this is true. This is true. Immediately, we began to see, let me back up here, I think we missed a part here. Immediately, we began to see the triumph and conflict, verses 4 through 6, 4 through 6. And the scripture beginning there in verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks And not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And we're going to stop there for just a moment. So we have triumph and conflict. And in the midst of triumph and conflict, the first part is triumph. You have a church born in verse 4. Three weeks from arriving in Thessalonica, you have a church. Not fully established. It doesn't have its leadership. So therefore, by the strict definition of a church, we don't have a church yet. But we have the believers that would make up the church. We have the first ones who would accept Christ as Savior. Three phases or three phrases rather pop off the page in verse four. The first one, as we look into verse four is that some of them, that is some of the Jews were persuaded, some who were of Jewish origin came to Christ the, these three Saturdays. but notice, The next phrase. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. What a staggering statement. Paul has a great yearning for the Jewish people. We know that from Romans. Paul declares that he would even give up his own salvation if that were possible. Romans chapters 9 through 11. Paul has a great yearning for the Jewish people, but wherever Paul goes, more Gentiles convert to Christ because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. But it is fascinating to me that in Thessalonica of all places, a great many devout Greeks come to Christ. Mount Olympus is literally outside their synagogue. The epicenter of, of the Greek pantheon, is right there in Thessalonica, and a great many devout Greeks come to know Christ. But it's not just them that gets called out. The third phrase is, and not a few of the leading women. As we saw in Philippi, we see here in Thessalonica the significant role of women in the early church. Not a few of the leading women of Thessalonica joined in the church in those first three Sabbaths. That was the group who came to Christ. The church springs to life. Acts 20 verse 4 uh, speaks of two of these who are from Thessalonica. Uh, One of them is uh, Articus. And he would be traveling with the Apostle Paul. Seducus would be traveling with the Apostle Paul. Both of those are named as of being of Thessalonica. So not only did the church invest and in come to Christ, the people became believers coming to Christ, but they also invested into Paul's missionary journeys, traveling with him as he would go. These were the first group of believers in this prominent metropolitan city. This city that had everything that they could possibly want and more. Paul has reached now for the sake of the gospel in three Sabbaths. Turn over to First Thessalonians 1 verse 6 for just a moment. We're going to return back to the book of Acts, but 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, Paul is writing to these that were just named. These three groups, a few Jews, a good number of a devout Greeks, and a good number of leading women in the community. And Paul says this to them, First 1 Thessalonians 1:6. 1, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received not my gimmicks, not my uh, eye-catching trickery. You received the Word, the Word of God, in much affliction. We're going to get to the affliction in just a moment. But they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What a stark contrast from a world outside. The world outside was booming, was bustling, was totally devoted to how much money they could make. And we know, as we see in our own society, where that leads. Hopelessness and despair. And yet, the believers in Thessalonica had joy of the Holy Spirit. These men and women, Jews and Greeks, would radically impact the city of Thessalonica. But look into verse 8. First Thessalonians 1. Not only would they affect Thessalonica, but he says this, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Think about what this means. We're going to come back to it in a little bit, because that's going to be the accusation against Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. But as the church begins to grow, just a few months go by, and the impact of the faith of the Thessalonian believers has not only reached Macedonia and Achaia, but it's now being heard throughout the Roman Empire. Everywhere Paul goes, he hears of the Macedonian believers, and when he hears of the Macedonian believers, he hears of those from Thessalonica. Just a few months after Paul was there. This is a church that is on fire. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, Macedonian and Achaia, but everywhere. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony of every faithful church? And it is the testimony of every faithful church. Let us be those who sound forth the word of God everywhere. Everywhere. But as soon as this begins to happen. Go back to Acts chapter 17. The church is growing, and then there's conflict now. Conflict from the Jews, and we're going to speed up and move through the conflict that is here. First, we have conflict from the Jews in verse 5. The scripture says this in Acts 17. It says, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. That is, Paul and Silas out to the crowd. So there's conflict immediately. As soon as Paul is in the city for three weeks, there's immediately conflict. As soon as the church begins, persecution erupts. The Jews, those who did not believe, hired a mob of the rabble. That is, the the ones they knew they could cause problems with. And they hired them to raise a mob to rise against Paul and Silas. Now, Paul's first missionary journey, this was a continued problem. Paul would go from city to city, and the Jews from one city would hear he went to another city, and so they would send a contingent to stir up that city against Paul. That has not yet happened in Macedonia. Paul has been in Philippi, and while he got kicked out of Philippi, it was not the Jews who drove him out of Philippi. It was the citizens of Philippi. But he comes to Thessalonica... And goes into the synagogue for three Sabbaths, and the Jews are stirred up again. And they seek to harm Paul. They stir up the whole city. It is fascinating to me, and this is important for us to understand as we see these things happening increasingly around our world today. The opposer of the church is very active, the opposer of the church is very strategic. His schemes are not very original. But they are effective in stirring up the hearts of the lost. So when we actively proclaim the word of God, can we expect persecution to come? The answer is yes. We should expect it. And Paul's certainly expecting it. And opposition comes, and it comes in the same way that it had come on Paul's first missionary journey. Through the same people groups the opposer of the church is not very original, but he is effective in stirring up the hearts of the lost. And so now persecution comes, the first part of verse 6. And when they could not find them, that is Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. It's fascinating that Jason is named by name. Evidently, Paul and Silas had been living in Jason's home during these three weeks that they had been in Thessalonica, and when Paul and Silas weren't there, the mob arrives at Jason's house, they beat on the gates, they drag Jason out of the house, along with other brothers, perhaps the church was even meeting in Jason's house now, they drag them off, they haul them before the city officials. Recognize who's doing the dragging. This isn't the city officials taking Jason to the city officials. This isn't the leading citizens of the city. This is the mob. Not the outfit, but the other mob. This is those who are just rised up immediately, and they're dragging Jason down the street, along with other brothers who had come to know Christ as Savior. The persecution of these Jews will follow Paul and Silas throughout their ministries. The book of Acts is going to record it over and over and over again. But Luke provides an interesting glimpse at the accusations. The accusations are somewhat fascinating, and they're not original to Paul and to the ministry of Paul, and they are certainly those that still happen today. Notice, as we begin to assess the attack, notice what those are. First, there's jealous accusations. Jealous accusations. Look at verse 6 again, very end. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Verse 5 says this, but the Jews were jealous. So what was the problem? People were leaving Judaism and coming to Christ. And not only were people leaving Judaism and coming to Christ, but the Greeks we're coming to Christ. And not only were the Greeks coming to Christ, but the leading women in the community of Thessalonica were coming to Christ. Both of these were marginalized groups by the Jews. But they were coming to Christ too. So there's jealousy that swells in the hearts of the Jews who did not believe. Their motivation for persecution was not that Paul and Silas were proclaiming a different gospel than Judaism. Their motivation was jealousy. And it's the root of their accusations as well. They're turning the whole world upside down, and now they're here. The city of Thessalonica and all of Macedonia were indeed being turned upside down, by the simple but powerful message of the gospel that Jesus Christ had to suffer and die, but that he rose again from the dead. We too can anticipate jealous accusations when we are faithfully sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Today's culture will be a little bit different. Those who have developed all sorts of Uh, gimmicky ways to get you into their church doors will be jealous. Those who try to add to will be jealous. We discussed this when we talked about the woke movement and the way that it has impacted the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming the gospel that Christ died, that he rose again for sinners such as you and I. And then we have to add something to that. Anything to that. The woke movement is trying to add social justice to it. But Catholicism has added works to that. Many other religious groups have added works to that, or practices, or giving, or some other elements to the gospel. We can anticipate jealous accusations when we proclaim the simple and true gospel of Jesus Christ. But we also must recognize the next element, the assailing of the associates. The mob was after Paul and Silas, but they drugged Jason and the brothers out. Jason and the brothers were not the ones proclaiming. At this point, we're not proclaiming the gospel. But they were the ones who had responded to the gospel. And instantly, can you imagine coming to Christ and two to three weeks later or less, you're being drugged out of your house and hauled before the city officials for coming to know Christ as Savior. That's what happens in many parts of our world today. That's what happened in Thessalonica. And out of this builds a vibrant, joy-filled church. Paul needs to encourage their hope, but they received the Holy Spirit with joy. Guilt by association, Jacob is accused of harboring these who had turned the world upside down. And then... There's the appealing to society, the appeal to society. As we look through these attacks, we we recognize these attacks. We understand that these attacks come come because of jealousy. We understand that anybody associated with Christians will be assailed as uh, attacked and maligned. We also recognize then that those who are doing the attacking will generally appeal to government officials and overarching officials, and that is exactly what happens here. Verse 7 says this, And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. It's an interesting accusation that is placed, because isn't it the same accusation that Herod used when he tried to kill The baby Jesus. There's another king born. I'm going to remove him before he establishes himself. Removing a potential rival. When Jesus was crucified, the mocking that was assailed against him, that was leveled against him, was that he was king of the Jews. The Jews didn't want the inscription, but the Romans placed it there. The Jewish-inspired mob in Thessalonica appealed to the authorities that were there with the exact same accusations. As I said, the opposer of the church is not very original, but he is effective. And the message is that they were acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're turning the world upside down, causing all kinds of conflict in our stable economy. We don't want that instability to ripple out of here and to be blamed for the actions of these individuals, so we're appealing to the secular masses, to society at large, condemn them. The response is this. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. I want to take a moment just there. Paul is going to be sent away. That's the point we're working under. But I want to, to recognize for us that in this moment, consider the impact of the mob rule on society. The mob rule in Thessalonica on society. Four Sabbaths ago, when The Jewish people in Thessalonica woke up, the birds were singing, Mount Olympus, snow covered off in the distance, the beautiful weather, it was probably a gorgeous day near the Mediterranean. In their little cove, there was probably very little waves coming in, the waves were probably just that rolling, quiet wave, maybe a slight breeze off the water, and everything was stable. Stable. Everything was fine. Three Sabbaths after Paul arrives, the city is in upheaval. That is how much Satan hates the church. That is how much Satan despises the work of God and the proclamation of the word of God. The city is turned on its head. Everyone in Thessalonica knows, but the Lord is going to use that, and this church is going to grow exponentially over the next few weeks. So much so that it wouldn't just be those few that had come to Christ as Savior, although they were a greater number than in Philippi in the initial uh, conversions. But that number would grow so exponentially that all of Macedonia, all of Achaia, all of the world in a few months would hear of the church at Thessalonica. And they would know that they stood on the truth of the Word of God, that they would know that they proclaimed the Word of God, and not some other gimmick. It's also fascinating to me, and we should not uh, let this tidbit pass us as well as we Observe the text together. But when opposition comes against the church, you can guarantee that the mob that's bringing it against the church will use any and every opportunity they can to silence the church. Beloved, they are doing it today. They're doing it in the state of Michigan, right now. To silence those who speak the truth of the word of God. But the believers in Thessalonica would not be silent. Let us not be silent either. This is not for patriotism. This is not for gimmicks. This is not for the latest, greatest self-help or church planting or church revitalization guide. This is let us not be silent in the authority of the Word of God. There's where we speak. What would happen? Continue on in the text. When the people, the city, verse 8, the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10, And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Jason would be fined harboring paul and certainly paul's safety is in mind as the brothers and sisters there in thessalonica hurry paul out of the city for his own protection under under the cover of darkness but let us stop for just a moment i want to finish in verse 10 but let us stop for just a moment there is a new church established in three weeks Certainly, more leadership development had to take place, but by the time those, what we see all the way through to the end of verse 9, we see that there are leaders in the church who serve as representatives of the church. It is Jason and the other brothers. Paul is sent out and is writing again with great affection, as we're going to study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul has great affection for these believers He has great affinity for their faith and for their proclamation and their faithfulness to stay true. So Paul continues to disciple them and the church begins to grow. And more and more leaders are added to the number and the church begins to be solid. And will continue to be that way. In fact, giving to us some of the greatest eschatological doctrine that we find in all of the pages of the New Testament. Jason would lead the church well. It's also interesting that Paul would go out under the cover of nights, and at the end of verse 10, and when they arrived in Berea, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Paul was not deterred. It's going to get worse in Berea. If you've read ahead, it gets worse in Berea than it was in Thessalonica. But Paul goes on and he does it again, and he does it again, and he does it again. And in the wake you have churches springing up. And those churches are dynamic. And one of the most dynamic of them was the church at Thessalonica. Our call to worship this morning drew us into an understanding of the great truths of living steadfastly in this world. Today, even. It hasn't changed. Paul, as he did in the book of Ephesians, reminds the Thessalonians of the armor of God, standing firm, advancing for the cause of Christ. It is interesting. One author writes this, and then we're going to close here. He says, What makes this, an I can't get you out of my mind letter, so appealing and attractive? Paul writes to pep up people who are struggling people from whom the storm clouds have already gathered and from whom the future appears ominous. He emboldens them with a shot in the arm, and he does it in a way that is unforgettable, unique, and one-off. It is special because in every chapter he talks of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the great and blessed hope of the child of God. Every Pause quote for just a moment. Every single chapter in First Thessalonians points ahead to the second coming of Christ. No other letter of Paul or any other New Testament contributor does the same. What is their hope? Despite what we find in our culture today, it's not money. What is our hope? If you're trusting in money, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you're trusting in possessions, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you're trusting in vacations, sorely disappointed. If you're trusting in sports, sorely disappointed. But if you're trusting in the second coming of Christ, you will have great hope. That's where Paul goes. That's what this author is pointing out. Continue, quote, he says, It is special because in every chapter he talks of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the great and blessed hope of the child of God. There is no finer incentive to living a life of holiness and no better spur to motivate us to service if we really take to heart what Paul is saying and believe it with a no-strings-attached commitment, then it will lead to a deepening of our spiritual life. We will never be the same again. Paul never looked on the message of the imminent return of Christ as a theory to be discussed by armchair cynics waiting for the end of the world. Listen carefully. This is what I was building to, this statement. He saw it as a truth to be lived out in the rough and tumble of everyday experience. It is a clarion call to readiness. A wake-up call to live today in light of what the Lord will do tomorrow. That's why we study the book of 1 Thessalonians together. That's where we're going to go, Lord willing, next week as we dig into the book together, 1 Thessalonians. Of course, our fervent prayer is that Christ will return and we'll live the events before we uh, preach them through First Thessalonians. Let me close this time in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you as a people who live in a discouraged world, a people who live in a world that is looking to anything and everything but Christ for hope and security. Lord, as we understand the trends of society, we recognize that Scripture speaks boldly against these things. May we be those who not only proclaim a hope and a joy that is found only in Christ alone, but may we be those who actively live it out in holiness and purity, joy-filled lives in the midst of a discouraged, depressed, and deplorable world. When We know the mobs will be stirred against the church seasonally and at different times. We pray that our resolution and our resolve to stand firm on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the authority of the Word of God would never be shaken. That in those moments where we are buffeted by the ominous clouds from outside and unfortunately from within Christendom, I pray that we would be those who are boldly, steadfastly finding our joy and our hope in Christ alone. Looking forward to this great reunion where Christ will call us to himself, that we would meet him in the clouds, and they will be forever with Christ. May you receive the glory and the honor that is due as we focus on these incredible truths, I praise you that throughout First Thessalonians, not a single chapter neglects to leave out the truth of the second coming of Christ. May this be an ever-present thought on our hearts and our minds, that you would be exalted, that we would be encouraged, driven forward in obedience and in sanctifying lives before you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for these things. As we now respond and turn In music, may our hearts be lifted in worship. May you be exalted and glorified above all, and that our hearts would be those attuned to genuine, authentic worship that is pleasing, that is a pleasant aroma to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.